This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Tuesday, November 6th of 2018, it's episode 141. In this episode, The Sixth Commandment, plus tabletop RPGs for younger children, Jenny's Overlight Game, Grant's Eberron Prep, Raka, You Fool, and more. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. And I'm Jenny. How's everybody tonight? Tired, eh, but here. It's been an interesting couple of days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it has. We are recording this very late, Tuesday instead yeah. of Thursday, and that's on me, and I apologize. I've just, I've been feeling and really me sick. And me too. Not, it, me too a bit. Not like the sickness, but just like not being totally present. Yeah, this is a tough topic that we're talking about tonight. We're talking tonight about the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. We're continuing our Ten Commandments series, obviously. But that's a very big topic, and it took me a while to figure out exactly how I wanted to approach it. Yeah, and I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, with a with a more simple and like gaming-centric topic, a lot of the time we can be like, eh, we're just going to wing it. But it's like, this is one of the Ten Commandments. We better be in a position to bring at least our B game for this. Yeah, so. exactly. It's also one of the ones that probably relates most directly to gaming. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. very true. Yeah, it's like, thou shalt have no other gods before me is definitely an an important one. And there's stuff that you can get into, but it's like certain games don't have an aspect of like religiosity to them at all. Yeah. And just about every tabletop RPG has some element of violence to it. So we wanted to make sure we did this one justice. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot. We do have some other stuff going on, though. Uh, we've been doing some streaming, which has been fun. Uh, Ultimate Chicken Horse was really, really good last Friday. Yes. I'm really hoping we can get the video up for that soon. And uh, I'm honestly hoping we can just make that a regular thing because that was an absolute blast. Yeah, that mm-hmm. that was a fun time. We have a couple of other games that we could pull out and do in multiplayer, too. Oh, so. Yeah, like our Mellow or something like yeah. that. Yeah. One thing I do want to mention, by the way, we didn't turn this on when we played Ultimate Chicken Horse the last time, largely because I forgot about it. But <laughs> Ultimate Chicken Horse, maybe... People don't know what this is. Ultimate Chicken Horse is a simple little game where you build an obstacle course and race each other to the end. And you build it round by round and um, try and kill each other with traps and falling and hazards and that sort of thing. And uh, it's quite a lot of fun. It's a 2D Mario style platformer with very kind of floaty... Um, not always super responsive controls, which in this case is actually a feature rather than a bug. And it just just descends into absurdity and laughter and trash talking each other in the funniest way possible. And please know, please know so many times. (laughs) So much of that. Yes. Like, ah, 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 Okay, yep, yep, the saw got me. All right. (laughs) Specifically, the saw on the rotating arm of the rotating platform that you all built out of uh, an amalgam of, like, glue, barrels, this weird rotary saw, and an angry flower. Yeah. (laughs) It's, uh, It's a weird and wonderful game and weirdly cute. But the cool thing about Ultimate Chicken Horse, it is actually got a lot of Twitch integration such that one of the things we can do is allow people in chat to vote on the blocks that appear in the box each round. Yep. I really want to get a lot of people in chat the next time we stream this 
and turn that on so everybody can make our lives just miserable <laughs> or yes. hilarious. I mean, well, that's, one of the things the that, thing. you know, that would, yeah, that would push you towards is I think more interactive objects and less just plain platforms that's which true. would be great. Yeah, you know? we do need some platforms, obviously. And I, I'm sure the, the game has some safety measures. Mechanism built. for those. Well, yeah. if nothing else. I think there's a limit on like how many of a particular item can appear and that sort of thing just for. So you can't you can't literally have the Uber hoppy, hockey stick launcher that just wipes <laughs> out the whole map in a endless wave. Well, yeah. I'm thinking more of like black holes and that sort of thing, simply because like it reaches a point where the physics has trouble keeping up. I think I've got an i7. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> I can host. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. You do that. Anyway, it's a cool thing. And I think we ought to do that because it would be a lot of fun. But we've got other stuff that we're going to stream at some point. Jenny, I don't know if you um, you may know this already. Sunless Seas has a sequel. I am aware of this. Sunless okay. Skies, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I heard I am aware. some other Twitch streamer talking about it, actually. And oh. <laughs> uh, I was like, I need to make sure Jenny knows about that. Yes, I, I get regular email updates from the Sunless Seas devs. Good. So I'm, I'm well aware of Sunless Skies. Uh, cool. I've been thinking of picking it up for a little while. And uh, speaking of streaming, I am continuing my Pathfinder Kingmaker stream. Uh, I took one week off so Jenny could um, stream Eldritch and scare herself silly a couple of times. <laughs> Which was hilarious. Oh, no, yeah. The, the <laughs> Shoggoth or stream. whatever those were. Yeah. Oh, they were those, awful. Those are miserable. Yeah. That was real bad. I, I felt some genuine sympathy for you there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Death by I Shoggoth is not a good way to go. <laughs> no, I did stop streaming that after I, I got what I call skin-hurtingly scared. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, and unfortunately, after a conversation with you about that, I've come to realize that that's not really a figurative term. No, like, when I get jump-scared, my skin just hurts all over. But especially on my forearms, uh, basically anywhere that you would normally get goosebumps, I just get, like, intense pain. It's very bad. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I have had goosebumps so bad that it hurts before. Yeah, I've had I have that too, as well. But and nothing this is, that persists. Yeah, this is different. And it lasted for a solid like, like even after I stopped the stream, it was still going on a little bit. It was awful. Ugh. So, yeah, but that's that's my goal every Halloween. It's the the one time of the year where I get let myself get skin hurtingly scared. <laughs> <laughs> that's the time of the year to do it. Yep. <laughs> yep. All right. We do have some other stuff that we have in the works, though, and this is all for, you know, actual role-playing games. But I'm working on prep for an Eberron game, which is a lot of fun. I've got the Wayfarer's Guide for Eberron, which is kind of the official 5th edition publication for that. Uh, and I know a couple other folks have it. Um, I'm also working on another document drawing from all my 3rd edition books and 4th edition books, trying to kind of summarize the bits that I feel the Wayfarer's Guide doesn't really cover properly, like religions. It does a really bad job of those. Yeah. It, it has a little trouble with like, hey, this is kind of like the real feel of the economy of Eberron, or at least Corvair, which is the main continent. You know, it, there's one or two things I kind of want to expand on. And when I say one or two things, I mean I'm up to 23 pages. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a real problem with me. Yeah. Well, this is, this is a theme in our gaming group. GMs give homework. I assigned yeah. NPCs. Grant assigns reading. Jenny assigns reading. It's a thing. Jenny assigns <laughs> reading and NPCs. That works out. Yeah. <laughs> well, pl player Did characters. I assign NPCs? Well, you assigned PCs. Well, because they were pre-gens. We can talk about that after you're done well, talking no, no, about Well, no, no, let's talk about that because all right, we all right. did a session of Overlight and you GM'd. Yep, I did. Yep. I did do that. It was my first time uh, 
GMing, first off, GMing a non-convention game, and also my first time GMing a module. Have I been there every time you've GMed? No, you were not there when I ran everyone is or everything is dolphins. Okay, (laughs) you were not there for that one. That was my first ever GMing thing, and I, I, yeah, I don't think. I, th- I think there's at least one or two people on our Discord who are in that game. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so this is my first time running from a module, and it's a very different experience. Fortunately, it's Overlight, so it also is is freeform enough that I can sort of expand on descriptions and stuff, because it's a very Technicolor setting for the most part, but we're currently in a very bleak area of, of the Overlight setting. We're on a island in the universe uh called uh pyre and it's uh it's it's a very dark bleak dark kind of place with a very um it's basically iceland but more lava yes yeah uh iceland in winter with more lava pretty much like it's just misery and lava and big angry guys and girls yep yeah and um, thanks to your module, Angry Bats. Yeah, Angry <laughs> Big Bats. Uh, and uh, some pretty chill beasts that I can't remember the names of right now. Y- Yekaboko. Yep, yep, Yekaboko. Um, I still have my notes in front of me, so. <laughs> I, n- I know they probably don't look anything like him, but I that name just makes me think of Appa from um, Avatar. Honestly, I was thinking Appa a little bit as well. I get the impression they're more lizardy. Or something? Oh, I don't know. Okay. It's so much more fun to picture the floof. Uh, but yeah, so it was also my first time giving out pre-gen characters that, like, I didn't make. Sure. Because uh, I, I did actually make one pre-gen character because the module is intended for three to four players and we have five in our group, but the fifth player couldn't make it that week. But she should be able to this coming Saturday. And I'm really looking forward to her getting to use that character. I put yeah. a fair amount into like the mechanics of the character and absolutely nothing into the backstory. So she can do whatever she wants with it. I, I'm looking forward to it. I do mm-hmm. think the whole session went very well, just Thank to say you. that. I felt like I was stuttering and stumbling a whole heck of a lot. Nah. Um, I That's felt what like GMing a, feels like, Jenny. Yeah, yeah I do it all the time. big old mess. But like, especially because it was a module because like... There was this one point <laughs> where I had to flip several pages over because the module prepared for the possibility that your players would be stupid enough to try to fight two guys. Yeah, I remember that exact moment. You were like, oh, yeah, the module th- seems to think you guys are going to be dumb enough to fight them when we're just like. <laughs> now, I did probably misphrase or misrepresent the module because it wasn't like. It didn't actually think you guys were going to fight them, but it's like, hey, players do stupid things sometimes, so just in case, here's three pages of potential outcomes. But yeah, no, you guys were like pretty good about some things, just rolled real bad. So then I got to improvise a little bit and that was You say we rolled real bad. I think there we were rolled... zero successes. Yeah, well, statistically, <laughs> that's what's going to happen with this system. That's what's interesting. This, yeah. it, like, I have never seen a system where the default assumption is you're going to fail more than 50% of the time. Rogue Trader was like that. I think uh, in a lot of cases, you had a success chance under 40%. Oh, okay. That's the true. highest I think anybody had was like 56% in something. So I'm going to disagree a little bit because one of the things Rogue Trader encourages is um, lots of situational bonuses. Now, that means a lot of bookkeeping, uh, which is okay. a real pain. But it's basically if you turn the situation to your advantage, you're likely to succeed. Otherwise, 
the world is awful. And, you know, perhaps Overlight kind of functions in the same way. But I do like the system. Like, even though it's weighted against you, success feels good. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, and I also will say, like, through reading the rules, at least reading through the module, there weren't a whole lot of situations where there could be, like, situational bonuses. I will say that I didn't exactly, I never fudged a rule, but I did try to rule in the character's favor or at least in the story moving forwards favor and that's the thing that overlight seems to be really good at it's more of a no but system rather than a hard no or a no and if that makes sense so it's like yeah no but there's an opportunity for this or a a no is not a hard stop for success yeah like it doesn't stop the plot one of the things that we see a lot with D&D, maybe due to the obstacle-based nature of D&D, yeah. is if you fail to you know, make this roll, the obstacle stops you. So either you roll until you succeed or you find some other way around or you go, why am I making you roll for this obstacle? Yeah. And there's some value in having a, a obstacle that nobody can overcome and th- then you go, huh, well, I guess we'll come back to this another time when we're better prepared and have more things or whatever, right? Th- there's some value mm-hmm. to that. But the idea of you failed and yet you continue on bearing the consequences of that failure is pretty nice. Yeah. And we had some cool moments. I'm not going to get into all the details of them, but we had some cool moments. Mm-hmm. We grasped the system pretty quickly because it is the same role yeah. each time. You're just changing the size of the dice you use depending on the mm-hmm. stat and skill. Yeah, the, which the I like. vast majority of the time you are rolling seven dice. Yeah. Uh, I think if if you're untrained in a skill, you roll five. What is it? five dice. But yeah, you're always rolling a big old mitt full of dice, and I love that so much. It does feel um, good. It, oh, it feels so good. I love a big old mitt full of dice. Everybody does. That's why Shadowrun 3rd Edition, despite all of its flaws, is an absolute delight. You roll that big oh, yeah. fistful of 20d6, ah, feels great. Yeah. Yeah. It was really good. You're kind of right. It's a little weird to me that... Like, the adventure is cool. The module is is interesting. But mm-hmm. I feel like the area that the module is set in shows off that bright fantasy aspect of the setting maybe the least, in a yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right now I'm using the module uh, for free RPG day, actually. Because I w- when I backed this on Kickstarter, I got the, the full rule book, I got a mm-hmm. Kickstarter exclusive module, and I got the free RPG day module. And okay. these three modules, uh, the, the main rule book contains a module. So the three modules actually go in sequence. So I'm going from the start with the free RPG day rule book. The next two are about two of the brighter, more vibrant settings in, in, in the setting. But I didn't know if we, first off, if we were going to make this like, not 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 necessarily like our regular game, but like a, a regular interlude sure. kind of thing. So like, if we were going to do that, I wanted to go in order. I, I think that's a good choice. Makes sense. Yeah. So the the first module deals with Pyre and the Pyroi a lot, and the second module, the one in the main rule book, deals with the Harkeen and the human city island. Right. And the third one deals with, um, I don't even remember what shard it is, but there's like a lot of greenery on the front. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's with the Terixians or with the Banyari or even, uh, there's also a lot of monkeys on there. So it might also deal with, um, I think it's called Zenith? No. The one with the monkeys on it. Yeah. Yeah. The snow one. Yeah. Big it, might snow. Be, it might be Zenith. Once once again, can I just emphasize that I really like how rich the setting is? Wow, See, am I so bad at remembering names. <laughs> okay. I actually disagree with you there. I don't think it feels very rich. Okay, how so? 
everything is very limited. In what way? The characters as described, like the species, all feel very much like we're all the same thing and we don't really differentiate much among ourselves. Even the Banyari, mm -hmm. which are physically differentiated, are all kind of the same thing. The, okay. you know, the monks of Zenith are all kind of the same thing. The humans of whatever giant city plane they're on are all kind of the same thing and so on all the way down. There's these itty bitty variations, but ultimately they all feel like the same thing. And it actually okay. felt very restrictive to me. Okay. Now, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Telling a story about these people specifically is fine, but it did feel restrictive when I was trying to pick out my character. I was like, you know, it's not like I'm building a character that fits me. It's like I'm kind of having to pick from things that don't all quite fit. Okay. I see the general feeling of each of the main races to have a huge amount of potential for variability within a select mindset, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. So, yeah, and maybe that just didn't come across because I was trying to read the, the stuff that you provided quickly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I also think there's an element of first book-itis here. Mm. You're trying yeah. to cram an entire setting into a book that also contains the rules and everything, and yeah. you don't have a whole lot of room for a huge amount of variance in there. I suppose yeah. that's and true. And it's not even just like a player's handbook and then there's going to be a GM's handbook. Like this has a player's handbook, the GM handbook, and a little bit of a monster manual in there as well. So they are packing a whole lot into one tome. Sure. Uh, it's a pretty big book too. So I, I feel like they may well expand on each of the sh individual shards in like separate, uh, not, not exactly, well, yeah, splat book kind of things. Um, and that would work. If nothing else, I didn't get a feel for each place as like a real living place. It was just like a place where these sorts of people have stories and live. Okay. And maybe that's some of it. I am very place driven and like set piece driven. Okay. And so I need to look at some piece of set and be like, what cool thing could happen here? Okay. Now I see what kind of story we're telling. See, okay. I didn't get that at all. I mean, it, it seemed like the whole th at least the the shards that I had time to read all the way through, which were the one that my character was from and the one where the adventurer took place. It seemed like that was especially that um, the one that my Terixian player character came from. It was just a huge, just, you know, bunch of like, these are all these interesting locations and they were caused by these and these events. And that one had I, more than the others. And it's kind of telling that it came first and the Terixians are the perspective character that is describing the entire setting. Sure. Like, it does kind of feel like, hey, we had a really good idea for this setting and then everything else, like, not as well. Well, I don't I'm, know. I'm noticing that I'm describing different stuff about different places in the setting that I'm working on as I do the blog post for our website. So sure. I think a certain amount of that is unavoidable. Oh, well, yeah, you know? absolutely. But yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't hate it by any stretch of the imagination. I had a lot of fun. It's really cool. You know, I would definitely recommend it. It's just like, it didn't perfectly suit me, but I'm still having a blast. Yeah. So yeah. I also think I, I tend to go for more individual character motivation in a story rather than the setting motivating the story, if that yeah. makes sense. And I'm definitely so I, I am coming at it from a, a character motivated standpoint and a cool moment motivated standpoint, which Overlight does phenomenally. Like when you get a cool moment, you get a cool moment. You do. And um, I love that. For me, it's, even if things go spectacularly wrong, there's yeah. that oh, shatter yeah. mechanic, which is really interesting. Yeah, I mm, like that. The magic that. setting is really cool. No, oh, the magic is great. Probably my favorite part yeah. of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, but like for me, 
and I don't want to spend too much more time on this because we have a huge topic mm-hmm. to talk about. But like, yeah, the thing that hooked me on Eberron was, which is the thing I'm working on now is, um, l- let me back up. The thing that hooked me on Sharn specifically, which is the giant city of towers in Eberron, you know, mile high towers and a vertical metropolis, basically was one of the intro adventure kind of things talking about it, where it was this battle on top of like two bridges crossing each other. So you have like, you know, kind of a high ground and a low ground and these voids that you can fall into if you're not careful. And, you know, it's just this cool set piece battle that you could do. And that kind of thing where it was like, oh, yeah, I see what's going to happen cinematically. That's what grabs me. Mm. So as we play this more, I'm probably going to get more of those because I'll be more familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I'm yeah. going, it's D&D, but on like cool fantasy, you know, industrial revolution bridges. Like, OK, I have reference points for both of those. We have fewer reference points for this thing, so I don't have the mental imagery for it. Yeah. Uh, One other note, and by the time this comes out, it'll be about halfway through the month or so. NaNoWriMo is going on, uh, National Novel Writers Month. I did drop a blog post on this that be up on the website, but basically the idea of NaNoWriMo is that you try and hammer out 50,000 words of, well, traditionally novel, um, but something in the month of November, which works out to about 1,670 words per day if you round it up to the nearest five words. So it's it's a lot. <laughs> I've been staying on track with the project that I've been working on, which isn't a novel, but I'm not quite ready to discuss all the details of yet. It's It's an ask, but it's doable. It's very doable. So I want to encourage anybody who's hearing this to... If you're hearing this during the, um, the month of November and you think you can, you know, get in on it, give it a shot. If not, plan for next year. This is the first year that I myself have been able to do it because all of the years prior that I knew about this thing, I was either A, working in retail and my job, you know, sometimes had me working overtime and or was just leaving me ragged at the end of the day. B, I was taking a class and was losing a bunch of time in the evenings to that or C, both. So this year I have neither. So I am striking while (laughs) the iron is hot. (laughs) Awesome. Good. Yeah. I actually have a friend who uh, got a novel novel that she wrote during NaNoWriMo, like actually published. Awesome. That's so, very cool. Yeah, yeah. I know some bestsellers have been written during it, too. There was one called uh, Water for Elephants that I was aware of when I was yeah, at yeah. Barnes & Noble. That one was a NaNoWriMo book. So There you huh, go. Cool. And it's worth yeah. pointing out a lot of these are, you know, NaNoWriMo as like the first draft, right? You don't go NaNoWriMo yeah. and then, hey, here no. you go, hand off the manuscript. Yeah, no, it's not a, it's not a finished manuscript. The idea is to... Um, lean on yourself in a month that has four day weekend in it. If you're an American, most likely <laughs> and, um, hammer through and get your 50,000 words down. And then like, you know, December, January, February, right. Perhaps March and April, you edit and refine and add stuff and take stuff away until you're happy with oh, it. Oh yeah. But that mm-hmm. first draft is the hardest part. Yeah. There's a whole infrastructure yeah. built out around NaNoWriMo, which is great. Like outline October and everything else. It's pretty fun. Oh yeah. yeah. It's, it's neat. Yep. That is cool. And I'm proud of you for doing it. I tried doing NaNoWriMo once, and it is very, very hard. So kudos for doing it. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of practice actually doing our biweekly blog, so I've yeah. gotten good at producing content on a regular basis. And mm. that's fair. This is this is like going from like jogging around the neighborhood to running a marathon, though. This is tough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, let's roll for our Patreon question, and then we've got a huge topic to cover, so we're gonna have to book it through this one. Alrighty. All right, ready? Okay. So this is from G Factor. What tabletop RPGs would you recommend for playing with younger kids, elementary age, and how would you transition them to more complex games as they got older? 
Um, well, I think the obvious one is uh, No Thank You, Evil, right? Uh, yeah, No Thank You, one. Evil is good. It's certainly a good one. I like it. Uh, Happy Birthday Robot is also good. Yes, for very young kids. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and along the same lines, Doe, Pilgrims of the Flying Temple is yes. a good one for young, ele- well, mid-elementary to late elementary, I would say, on into middle school. That one's really good. I recommended that to a friend at work whose kids had never touched RPGs, and they loved it. So that worked out really well. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a weird one, but if they are late elementary, I would recommend Savage Worlds. Yeah, okay. that that would that could be a really good one because it has the draw of the many many dice. No, that's the thing. It really doesn't very much because your your skills are a single die that increases in size as you go as you. Um, yeah, I I I don't mean like the mitt full of dice. I mean like the many different types. Yes, of dice. many different types. Yes, you're absolutely yeah, right. You, there's a clear yeah. progression in skill from a d4 up to d12 or whatever, and it's pretty simple to track hits because you just have three of them. Bennies are a pretty obvious thing. Initiative is cards, which is super simple. You're not tracking stuff. It's just, all right, who's got the highest card? The progression system is just pick a cool thing or increase one of your dice. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty simple. I'd also, I'd also recommend um, the official Doctor Who role playing game because the stats are simple. Character creation is relatively simple and initiative is really, really simple. It's, it's, you basically get the same initiative every time. Mm. I'm pretty sure it's been a long time since I played it, but I remember like playing it relatively young. Granted, I start, I started with D&D Light at age four. So like possibly a different situation than the the kids you may be talking (laughs) about. But the Doctor Who role playing game is really quite simple. Uh, it uses language that is easy to understand. Like, you don't have to look up what a skill does. It's like, this skill says lock picking. Right. <laughs> you pick a lock. Uh, I think the one they may have most difficulty understanding what it is is Technobabble, which is basically like, you completely just make some weird stuff up and it happens in technology form. And so that's probably the most difficult interpretive uh, aspect of the game that you're going to run into. It's really simple. That's a good one. Yeah. Prizes would probably work pretty well. Yeah, it would. It would. I will second the Savage Worlds thing. That was a very low friction system when we were using it for Shadowrun. And I would say once you start getting up into like the fifth and sixth grades, they're probably ready to dig into 5e. Although Mm -hmm. I would start with pregens. Sure. Just so they don't have to try and like... First of all, you know, you can do a little bit of content filtering that way if you don't want them playing Warlocks or something. That's a way around it. And B, spellcasters are hard, yo. <laughs> yeah, <Like>, they really <laughs> are. <laughs> actually, a lot of fiddly bits. I would say late elementary, let them make their own characters because that's a really good way to get acquainted with a system and how a system works. Oh, that reminds me. One other thing that's really, really important and the, um, I think is a really good choice. Practically any superhero game that isn't like hero system. <laughs> just if you can find any simple superhero game it's immediately relatable for most elementary school kids there's the pretty clear right and wrong that kids can handle pretty easily and sort out you can always set it up as what mistake did your character make in this episode and then how did they fix it so you kind of work with some of those complicated topics in the same way that a kid's show does and you can just kind of build it up from there as for how to make it more complicated as you, uh, and age them out of that um you know, I think just picking more complicated systems is a pretty simple approach, you know, fifth edition or whatever. I also think just picking up like an extra splat book and saying, okay, now you can build your own character with rules from both of these and then, you know, these three and you know, kind of add more character complexity and more complex plots, more stuff to track. And I don't mean like items and gear and 
also that, you know, in feats, but also more complicated plots to follow and deal with and more things to manipulate, I think that'll handle it. Yeah. You know what else I would recommend? Use the advancement system. Yes. Uh, like, uh, get most games will inherently get more complex as the characters advance. Yeah. I'd also say that even if you are using an incredibly simple system, adding more complexity to the plot alone might do it. Like, I know a whole lot of people who regularly game with super simple systems, but incredibly complex, deep, moral philosophy plots. So Chad you, from you Fear the Boot is notorious for that. Yes. <laughs> You don't necessarily have to, um, you know, get real complex with a system unless you're using this as like a math teaching tool, which, you know, might be it might be useful to, you know, on that case, you got to break out hero system. Oh, no, you don't (laughs) break out hero system and the slide rules and the protractors and the graphing calculators and (laughs) oh, no, drag an old cray into the back of the room and teach him to program on that. And that'll just be the first hour of character creation. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. Yeah. G-Factor, thanks for the question. It's a good one. Please get us more questions because that looks like your last one. And uh, hopefully our other Patreon supporters can send us more questions as well. We got some uh, just earlier from another one, Tom Stevens. So we appreciate that. And if you want to send your questions in and you aren't a Patreon supporter, all it takes is a dollar a month to, to get questions into us. We appreciate it. And just a quick reminder, it doesn't have to be about faith or gaming. We answered one about cars a while ago, and that actually gave us some interesting stuff to talk about. Yep, so. exactly. We got one uh, from Tom about podcasting that I'm going to look forward to. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's read our scripture, and then let's get into this rather difficult topic on murder. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against any of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And this is Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26 from the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And this is Romans 13.9. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So our topic tonight is the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. But before we even get into that, I wanted to bring up a pre-topic point of interest about our scripture reading. All right. This came up when I was doing uh, some some looking at the scripture that I, I picked out here, that section from Matthew 5. And in 522, uh, Matthew uses a word, raka. This is not translated, which is interesting. Raka is an Aramaic word, possibly corrupted in the text. The original may be reka, which is an insult meaning foolish or empty-headed. The term literally means empty one. Uh, Jesus uses the term again in Matthew 23, 17 when he's deriding Pharisees. 
There's some debate on less likely meanings of the word reka and just how severe an insult it is, as well as the word used for fool in the next sentence, but we're not going to get into those. They don't really serve our purposes. For the purposes of this conversation, just know it's an insult and likely not a friendly jab. And this word reka tracks with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, or at least this section where Jesus uses repetition to drive that point home. If you say reka, if you say you fool, these kind of repeating himself saying things two or three different ways to make sure his listeners then and now understand it. Yep. Uh, There's also a part of that uh, scripture reading which translates directly into Anglican practices. Uh, We don't do our offertory uh, before the peace. We have to do the peace and then the offertory because the peace is meant to be a literal making peace with your neighbor Mm -hmm. before you do the offering right at the altar first go and be reconciled to them then come and offer your gift yeah interesting yeah that's pretty cool huh. that would probably explain why uh the methodists do it that way too because mm-hmm. we're an anglican offshoot there you go yep. so all right so let's talk about the sixth commandment as a quick reminder we are using the protestant list of commandments here uh other denominations break them up differently though ultimately we're all talking about the same block of text as the ten commandments and thou shalt not murder is the sixth commandment Catholics and others would call it the fifth. Murder here is the unlawful killing of another, the abrogation of life in an inherently evil manner provoked by sin, killing in wrath, out of greed, out of lust, out of a pride that makes others less than human and so on. That is murder. And Jenny, I am disappointed that you haven't yet pulled out the moida. Moida? Moida. Uh, moida? Thou shalt not moida. There we go. Uh, now we're done, and I'm not going to do it again. All right, that's fair. Uh, <laughs> it's no mystery why that didn't come up. <laughs> yeah. uh, get out. Uh. <laughs> the Catholic Catechism's summary of the commandment reads, Human life is sacred because from its beginning it involves the creative action of God, and it remains forever in a special relationship with the Creator, who is its sole end. God alone is the Lord of life from its beginning until its end. No one can under any circumstance claim for himself the right directly to destroy an innocent human being. Now, the Catholic Catechism and every biblical concordance I could find puts Exodus 20.13 alongside Matthew 5.21. The verses are actually listed right after each other in the Catholic Catechism, even though we're talking about the Ten Commandments. The latter, that whole section from Matthew, is Jesus explaining and expanding on the former. That section of the Sermon on the Mount is not just Jesus talking about murder in general. He's talking about this commandment, do not kill lest you be subject to judgment, and going much deeper. Uh, It is impossible and should be impossible for Christians to discuss this commandment without considering it through the lens of Christ, as given in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I want to quote a sermon here by Dr. David Renwick. I found this when I was doing some research. It's a very good sermon. I'll link it in the show notes. And this is him kind of explaining this same point. This is a commandment which, according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, points us not just to the act of murder, but to all of those unresolved feelings, all of those unresolved emotions, all of those unresolved internal conflicts which lead up to the act of murder, whether or not we carry out the act of murder itself. Jesus tells us to sort out our lives way before we get to that point of unresolved emotions. And likewise, Christ's Sermon on the Mount indicates, and here I'm quoting again, that we are to understand this sixth commandment as a commandment which tells us, as his followers, to be actively involved in the healing of relationships wherever there is any kind of a breach. Instead of making it worse, we are to be the one who helps to resolve conflict and bring people together. 
We are to do it with our mouths, and we are to do it with our feet. Now, the sixth commandment is more than a passive command to not sin. It is, as Christ frames it, and we should certainly listen very closely when he does this, it is a call to actively engage in life. Life is complex. Matters of life and death are complex. Many political arguments, for example, revolve around life or death issues. But fundamentally, we are called to wrestle with these issues and not ignore them. And that kind of takes us to something that I think has caused a lot of problems for Sunday school kids, which is the choice of the verb murder over kill in most but not all translations. Uh, the King James notably uses the verb kill, but almost all modern translations use the verb murder. And that choice of verb requires us to think about this and understand the difference. The difficult, straight and narrow path that Christ calls us to gives us no excuse to murder, either actively or passively. Complicity in systems of thought or action that permit others to die as, as a result of our sins, a contempt for others that leads to, say, white supremacy or slavery, a greed that permits the poor to be the expendable tools of the rich, and so on, these are likewise murder. Life is precious, and we as Christians are called on to provide life. Yeah, and to kind of take off with this a little bit here, that's one of the reasons why you see so many of these um, angsty blog posts that I've written about Lambert's struggles with colonialism in Grant's last D&D game mm -hmm. that's kind of wrapping up here is a lot of really horrific stuff happened during the colonization of the New World. A lot of like native populations that were essentially minding their own business, but were in the way of the Europeans met some pretty terrible fates. I mean... And are continuing to meet terrible fates. Yeah, but I mean... Like, if you look on... I know how much your guys' news coverage covers the current effects of colonialism, but the CBC sure covers it. <laughs> colonialism is still very much a thing that at least I, I can... I think I can speak for myself that I, as a colonizer in Canada, am complicit in. This is a thing that I have to live with. Yep. Yeah, and... I I don't want to get too far into current events because we'll be here even longer than it oh, looks yeah. like we're already going to be. Mm -hmm. But I will say that things like my knowledge of what happened, say, when Hernan Cortez ran into the Aztecs, for instance, which yeah. that was kind of a I mean, the Aztecs practiced human sacrifice and stuff. That was a little bit of an evil versus evil kind of a thing. But there there was definitely a lot of um, brutality for the sake of greed that happened. Hey, these people have gold. Let's kill them and take it. You know, hey, these mm -hmm. people have land. Let's kill them and take it. You know, hey, these people want to be here and we don't want them to be here. Let's kill them to get them out of the way. That's all murder. <laughs> you know, it, it's happening on a societal level, but that's all murder. Yeah, it is. But it is worth, I think, breaking down this difference between killing and murder. And this is something yeah. we've talked about before. Yeah going way, way back to some very early episodes of Saving the Game. Yeah. Three, I think. All the way back to episode three. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the basic idea here, and we're going to get into a little bit of kind of a high level view of just war theory. Um, if you want significantly more depth on this, go back and listen to episode three. We're sorry about the audio quality. At any rate. Um, episode 74 has better audio quality and I think covers it just as well. And that, that's an episode with Derek White. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Go, go listen, listen to both. Yeah. Well, <laughs> go listen to Derek White. And then if you can stomach yeah. it, go listen to episode three. <laughs> That's probably the better advice, really. <laughs> like, go listen to Derek White. And while you're, you know, feeling all like inspired and intellectual after listening to his excellent analysis, then with your brain properly steeled, you can endure episode three. For 
<laughs> it's terrible audio quality and nervous hosts. Yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, killing is never good, right? It, it's it's not something to rejoice in. But Christian thought and Old Testament Jewish thought before Christ has almost always admitted that there are some cases where killing is necessary. Um. Essentially, these exception cases revolve around uh, protecting others from an aggressor. So from opponents in war, from dangerous criminals, you know, the old moral problem of do you shoot the suicide bomber before he can detonate his device kind of a thing. Yeah. It's still not something to feel great about, but sometimes it's the only way to resolve something that's happening in the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's also important to note that it is, I I think in every single case, it is okay to break a commandment in self-defense or defense of someone else. Some of those are going to come up a lot more and a lot less often, though. Yeah, but like, I remember when we talked about uh, keeping the Sabbath. Yes. A a day in which your movement is heavily restricted. If you're dying, absolutely break the laws of the Sabbath to get to a hospital. (laughs) Like, that that is totally okay. And if you break the commandment, thou shalt not not kill, I guess I'd say here, like in in self-defense or defense of someone else, you're okay. There's a Thomas Aquinas quote that I think really fits in here. It should be unintentional. The quote itself is, The act of self-defense can have a double effect, the preservation of one's own life and the killing of the aggressor. The one is intended, the other is not. Yeah, and this is this is interesting because a lot of self-defense instructors will tell you the same thing. Mm-hmm. You strike to stop the threat, not yeah. to like destroy the threatener or get some kind of vengeance. The the whole yeah. idea is to stop the threat so you can extract yourself from the situation or whatever else that needs to happen there. But Yeah. When I was doing self-defense classes in grade 9, we were taught that the most valuable thing that you have in self-defense is the opportunity to escape. Yep. You you are not there to to learn how to kill a dude when you're in self-defense class. You are there to create the opportunity for escape. Yeah. I took yeah. karate and different types of martial arts for years and multiple different styles all teach the same thing for that same reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now it's worth pointing out that the Old Testament also specifically allows for capital punishment as well, which is a sort of self-defense on a societal level. Here is somebody who has harm society and presumably will harm them again, thus we kill them to prevent further harm. It's difficult to avoid framing this as a punishment, and in many cases perhaps it is appropriate to frame it as a punishment, but it's worth thinking about that in terms of that sort of self-defense as well. Yeah, although I I will say like Christianity takes a much softer stance on that than like the faith of the ancient Israelites. Sure. There's there's a lot of arguments to be made that capital punishment is pretty much fundamentally uh, incompatible with Christianity in an age where you can securely lock dangerous people away. Or rehabilitate them. Yeah, ideally. But yeah. I, I mean, yeah. you know, at the worst, lock them away. You know, mm-hmm. it's especially because... It's a fallen world. Human justice systems are imperfect. There have been a lot of yeah. people who have been sentenced to death and then have been exonerated Proven of whatever innocent. crime that they yeah. committed and have been set free. So Right. And certainly harming the innocent is one of the things that this commandment very specifically prohibits. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's complicated. We cannot really get into a full discussion of capital punishment and changing societal norms and how that ties into the abilities to sustain and rehabilitate people, but it is a complex decision. And it gets back to what I was saying earlier about this being something that we as Christians are asked to grapple with. Yeah. The very phrasing of thou shalt not murder 
as opposed to kill, forces us to grapple with that. We can't avoid it. Mm -hmm. Yep. And likewise, you know, just war theory is a complex discussion. We have done two episodes on it, basically, and it's really complicated. (laughs) Finally, on this point, it's worth considering the death of Christ himself, which is something that we as Christians certainly think is an unjust death, but it was lawful under the Romans. That in and of itself pretty clearly points out that just and lawful are not necessarily the same thing. The founder of our faith was was executed unjustly by a powerful society. Mm-hmm. Think about that and let it sink in a little exactly. bit. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because we don't call a sacrifice on the altar a murder, but at the same time, the unjust nature of it was part of that death. Yeah, Christ I, died as a criminal, died the death of a criminal, but innocent. That's an important part of the crucifixion. Well, and the other thing to really keep in mind when you're thinking about Christ's death is it is... It fills the criteria for murder here. Oh, sure. Pilate acknowledged that he was innocent, but it was more politically expedient to torture him to death. So he did. Exactly. And, you know, the Sanhedrin condemned him to death because they were angry at him and thought he was not who he said he was. Yeah. Or they thought and they just didn't care. Yes. They didn't believe. Because power is a powerful motivator. Exactly. And this sort of brings us face to face with a stark difficulty. As we look at the sixth commandment in our role-playing games, many, probably most role-playing games revolve around killing in some form or fashion. And indeed, they quite often revolve around murder. Everything we've described above differentiates between killing and murder, but many of the games we play and the characters we create blur that line. Um, Shadowrun is a pretty good example of this. In Shadowrun, which is one of my favorite games and favorite settings and favorite, well, I wouldn't say favorite systems, but that's because the Shadowrun system is notoriously bad, uh, at least as far as like third edition. Roll 16 pounds of D6s and- And I will, and I will love doing it, but I will hate trying to figure out what it all means. Roll so many D6s, you could moiter someone with them. Sorry, now I'm done. Okay, are you sure? Yes. All right. (laughs) Really, really sure? I mean, you don't have to be. We're going to reset the minute since Jenny has said Moida sign. And (laughs) ding. Anyway, Shadowrun, you're playing presumptive criminals and usually actual criminals, although you're not required to play a criminal in the game. And you are doing illegal things for money. And when the Lone Star Renacrops or Ares guards show up after a crime and your characters shoot back at them, What's the line between self-defense and murder, exactly? In our game, it was non-lethal rounds. Yeah, that's, we didn't well, kill I'm people. glad it was in our game, but not everybody in our game yeah. used non-lethal rounds. Yeah, there were a couple. Of, I, the entire campaign had a body count of two. One of those was gored by an elasmatherium, and the other one died when we took his magical protection away. But my character did flip out and try and shoot some people who were leaving a member of their team behind. Yes, I distinctly remember you aiming for the knees to be more cruel. (laughs) Yeah, Frost had a temper. (laughs) Yeah, but that's the thing. This is what we do in our games. Mm -hmm. I I can't tell you how many D&D scenarios I've seen where it's like, yeah, we're going in and just harassing these innocent people. It's like, well, they're goblins. They're presumptively evil, right? Yeah. The, the whole thing in, in 3.0 and 3.5 and to a degree in 4th edition of like, uh, it's okay because it's it's just an evil thing. It's it's okay to kill it because it's evil. Sure. Well, that goes all the way back. It says to, right here in the monster manual. It goes all the way back to 1st edition. Yeah, but like it wouldn't... 
there were more like mechanics behind it in 3.0 and 3.5 than in 5e. Oh yeah, Holy Weapon did an extra 2d6 of damage to anything with an evil alignment, regardless of yeah. whether it was an actual demon or somebody who had become a bad person through horrible circumstance. Yeah. Made no difference. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I think we do not do enough to confront in our games. Just mm-hmm. I'll say it straight up. And I'm bad about it too. In part because I like telling those stories. I like games where things are complicated. I don't enjoy games about straight up murders, but I like putting characters and players in a situation where it's not entirely clear what the correct course of action is. Although you do tend to run out of patience when they get too angsty about it, as I can say from personal experience. (laughs) Yes. Stalling the game is one thing. Yes. Please just, you know, hurry up and do your thing, whatever it is. That is certainly a thing. But, you know, we've gone from the the colony game, which obviously had some some black and white. Like, nobody's like, I don't know, this gauge guy might be okay. Like, no, nobody's yeah. thinking that. Or anti-bloat is totally fine. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and again, that's a case where it's like, we are killing someone preemptively, but she has been actively threatening, has done terrible things, and... She's killed enough other people where it's starting to border on genocide. Yeah. I mean, she <laughs> she was killing Sahagin. Enemy of my enemy? Eh? eh? She was also killing Kenku. And- oh, yeah. No, she's obviously horribly <laughs> evil. And she's supposed to be because that's great. D&D has a lot of that. Yeah. I put a little bit of ambiguity in a, a few spots here and there. Well, and I mean, you guys also introduced some ambiguity in my game. I was fully expecting Melgar to be a throwaway combat encounter. Melgar is probably going to be an NPC that shows up throughout the rest of the campaign periodically because Jenny spared him and Chrissy befriended him and set him on a better path. Yeah, he's probably going to be a paladin now, which is great. Yeah. Right? And we avoided that. Trying to think, so far, I don't think we've killed anyone who wasn't like a manticore, uh, an actively evil and like extremely evil mercenary group or horrible demonic wasp people and their undead minions. Well, yeah, the the undead minions of uh, there was also a different undead faction. But yeah, they were also trying to kill you with completely without warning. Like, I don't think we've been up against like bandits. Nope. Which is fine. But in the Eberron game I'm planning, which is going to be set in Sharn and is kind of going to be a little bit more of a noir investigative mystery kind of game, not everything's going to be quite as black and white. And what do we do in that situation? Like, I know one of our players really wants to play a fire sorceress. There's not a lot of, oh, don't worry, everything's going to be fine from here on out in Fireball. No. Yeah. So it's something we need to grapple with. And I don't have good answers on this. I don't. Mm -hmm. There are certainly ways to get a group to start trying to be non-lethal. That's great. But many of the games sort of make this presumption that killing is part of the game and not all of that killing is necessarily going to be, yeah, you killed only the people who deserved it at a spiritual level. Yeah, although it is interesting, like you say that there's ways of getting players to stop doing or to start thinking in a more non-lethal way. I don't know that that was ever an active thing with our group where we were consciously aiming for it. It just turned out that way. No, you aimed for it. And it persisted. You specifically aimed for it. (laughs) Well. From the very beginning in Shadowrun. It was. I I mean, on a meta level, Grant, not not in, in terms of like the way the actual player characters behave. I think like our group's preference for non lethality is probably more of a player personality thing. Yeah. Okay. And it's kind of persisted as we've added people to. Yeah. So. yeah. 
as a, as an example of like how to get your players to think about it, the episode that we did with the people from Min Max podcast. Yes. Alan Mowers had a really good story about that. Listen to the episode to find out. Mm-hmm. It's also kind of interesting, speaking of crossing over with other podcasts, when we went to do that second little short recording with uh, City on a Hill, yeah. Ryan actually mentioned that Desilov's really like extreme reluctance about violence had actually rubbed off on one of the other player characters and she was kind of thinking yeah. of going that way too. It was, I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. It's like one of those things where it's like... Did you guys not even think about this before? So I, think <laughs> I, I honestly don't know. I'd like to hear more. I think a but, lot of people don't think about it because they assume it's built into the the game and the setting. Because yeah. right. most other media works that way. I mean, you know, your standard fantasy hack and slash is a hack and slash, not a fantasy let's try and resolve our differences peacefully game. Yeah. yeah. And even if it's not intended by the developers, in the in the overlight module, like a surprising amount of the first part, like the first chapter of the module was dedicated to a combat that the text in the module said probably shouldn't happen. Like you're right. when 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 you're just talking about like sheer volume of of rules related to combat and monsters and things you are quote unquote supposed to kill, it's like, oh well there's so much of this material, gotta use it. That's the thing. The sheer quantity of text in a role-playing game mm-hmm. devoted to combat sort of indicates that combat is the whole point of the game. Yeah. yeah. And there are very few systems out there, very few rule books out there that I can think of where combat is not multiple chapters, even though it's usually just like, here's the combat chapter. Well, it, it infects all the other chapters as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the largest chunk of page real estate is given over to combat and everything around combat. Mm-hmm. And let's let's not pretend like combat isn't fun. You know, well, like sure. it's, you know, mm-hmm. a good co- RPG combat is is great fun and sometimes if you're not looking to explore anything moral and you want to just play a tactical game, go for it. You know, that can that can be a nice way to spend a few hours with some friends. You yeah, know, exactly. our hobby has its roots in tabletop wargaming for goodness sake. And sakes. again, we are talking about killing whereas, you know, this commandment is against murder. Right. Mm-hmm. Wargaming is like, it's us versus them. This is the war I've been brought into. And, you know, we can certainly respect honest pacifists, but even, you know, C.S. Lewis, for example, never found anything wrong with a soldier doing his duty for de- yeah. you know, defense of his country. Yeah. And I, I mean, <laughs> it, it also bears mentioning that we did a multi-part series on mass combat here, too. Yeah, so it's not, mm-hmm. don't, don't take away from this that we don't think you should ever be doing combat in your RPGs. Just acknowledge the fact that there's a a chance of some moral complexity there and realize mm-hmm. that a that's a good thing to think about as a person and b that if you think about it in your game it has the tendency to make your game better and not worse right mm-hmm. having said that the murder hobo is a trope for a reason it did not just kind of spring into existence spontaneously and i do think the murder hobo is a problem and to get back to what you were talking about i think one of the simplest solutions is to sit down at a table and try and have your character act in a moral manner. Mm -hmm. Even if you have a cool idea for a character concept who's like, yeah, I'm going to be, you know, terrible murder dude. If you look around the table and be like, oh, well, all of these people have never even thought about doing it any other way, maybe set that character aside for a different game where you can explore that in more complexity and play a character who doesn't just murder outright, who will kill only as a last resort. 
I think showing people that this is a perfectly valid way to play and it doesn't interfere with the story and you feel better about it will have tremendous effects. Yeah, I, Lambert and Desilov were fun to play. Yes, exactly. I was just reading the other day a post on Reddit, and I think it was re, kind of a, a, a repost from somewhere else, but basically it was a guy who'd gotten into like an Overwatch game or something like that, and, you know, a bunch of teenagers, you know, just being real foul-mouthed and being real rude and that sort of thing, and he just started saying like, hey, good job, good work, yeah, hey, you did great, just being positive, being supportive and uplifting, and it completely changed the tone of the entire group of players. As I recall, it wasn't a group of teenagers either. It was a group of like elementary, like late elementary school kids who had, and and this was on the Xbox. And the Xbox side of things is known for being toxic, fa- absolutely foul mouthed yeah. voice chat. Yeah, um, and he may have said, you know, elementary school, but you know, I never quite trust random internet strangers' idea of how old kids are. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I think it's it's telling that one person going in, just being uplifting and changing the tone of the room can make that big of a difference. Mm-hmm. It's part of why I like the uh, the new system Overwatch has with rating people for their good stuff that they've done. Yes. Which is real nice. And it's just created a, a bit of a different culture. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, um, bring a little bit more of that thinkiness to the table and you might change the, the culture of the table the microculture of the table. Absolutely. And there is some value in not letting yourself entirely off the hook. Mm-hmm. Violence yeah. in games is fictional, but those impulses that lead to it are not. And using that to frame the question of violence and killing and murder so that we can examine it is useful in a game. Yeah. Figuring out kind of where the lines are in your own moral framework and if maybe those need to be moved a little sure. bit. <laughs> and not just internally, but externalizing that and saying, this is what the game is about makes for a very good game. I mean, this war of mine and Undertale, even though wildly different, are fine examples of exploring both of those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can do it in lots of different ways. I mean, the the tone of Undertale is wildly different from that of this war of mine, but they both kind of come back to the question of, is it okay to be violent? Yeah. And what, what are yeah. the rewards of that? Undertale is very um, humorous in a, a lot of the time, and this War of Mine is one of the most depressing games you will ever play. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say Undertale can also be one of the most depressing games you'll ever yeah. play, but in a very different direction. Yeah. Uh, and apparently uh, Deltarune is as well from the demo that was released. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's talk about At the Table. Obviously, we hope you're not ever going to have to decide between killing and murder at the table in a literal sense. <laughs> Um, obviously, <laughs> yeah. we hope that you are not going to have to head off violence between players at your table, but it's happened. It has happened. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Not to any of us, I don't think, but it uh, has yes. happened. Yes. To me. Continue. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I have not had this specifically, but I have heard, I've had members of my gaming group, uh, be in other games where this has happened. That's for sure. Yeah, well, but I mean, even even at the nobody's in danger of going to the hospital or the morgue level of things, it, it's a good general admonition against wrath. You know, uh, be mm-hmm. patient with each other at the table, be patient with each other away from the table. If somebody is late or has had a bad day and is kind of irritating and not themselves or something, exercise some patience. You know, it, we're all flawed humans. We're all trying to get through. And as Christians, we need to kind of model kindness and mercy in these sorts of interactions. Mm-hmm. Um Try and head it off at the thought level. Remember the the line from the Sermon on the Mount, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Seek justice, love kindness, walk humbly. 
et yep. cetera. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think maybe the best way to, to close this out when we're talking about the table is to refer back to Romans 13. That ninth verse, the commandments and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Show them grace, show compassion, show mercy. Yeah. And remember that when we're talking about these Ten Commandments, many of them are phrased in a negative form. Thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. So on and so forth. But they are not just negative commands, but positive commands, especially when looked at through that lens of Christ, where we go from do not do this to act in such a way, be the sort of person who prevents those sins, not just in yourself, but in others, Mm -hmm. and someone who is not complicit in those sins. I'm going to quote one more time from that sermon by Dr. David Renwick, because I like this particular turn of phrase. This commandment, the sixth commandment, not only stops us from murdering, but tells us, as it were, to be the good Samaritan. It is a commandment which says to us that we are to notice the people we would otherwise pass by, the people who live on the other side of the tracks, the people who need housing, and we need to build that housing for them, or the people who need health care, the people who do not have what we take for granted. As Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, our job is to stoop down and to care and to provide life. I think that yeah. that idea of providing life instead of death is perhaps at the heart of this particular commandment, both in our games and in our hearts. Anybody else got anything? Not after nope. that. <laughs> nope. That's a really good point to stop. Okay. Yeah. Then let's wrap this up here. Uh, if you have your own thoughts on this, I'd love to hear them. Uh, tweet them at us. That always works well. Put them in our Discord, which, by the way, if you want to join our Discord, which is a wonderful way to chat with us and other members of our community, which has been nice and active lately, and that's always fun to see, please go ahead and get involved. You can find uh, our Discord at our website, where you can find blog posts from Peter and past episodes and all sorts of other things. Website is stgcast.org, or if you want to use the old URL, which is perhaps easier to remember in some ways, savingthegamepodcast.org. And of course, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere else. Fine podcasts are sold for nothing. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, and of course, you want to support us on Patreon. Fine podcasts are given away for free. Yeah. If you want to support us on Patreon, <laughs> patreon.com slash saving the game. You can reach out to us through Facebook. You can email us. There's a, a way to contact us on our website, all sorts of ways. Basically, we want to, we want to hear from you, even if it's just mm-hmm. to us directly. That's great. Uh, And if you like what we do, consider supporting us on Patreon, or if you want to support us in different ways, put reviews of our show up on iTunes. Talk about our show. Let people know that we're a show that exists. That really does help tremendously. And we really appreciate the time and effort from listeners who enjoy what we do and and put that out there. It helps enormously. Indeed. Mm -hmm. We have a wonderful community. We really do. Y'all are great. All right. It's getting late. We've had a long episode. Let's go ahead and wrap Mm -hmm. this one up here. From all of us at Saving the Game, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See you later, folks. See ya. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.